Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 226, A Crowded Chessboard. Alexius Komnenos spent most of his reign facing down one crisis after another. Two Turkic states established themselves in Anatolia, the Normans of Italy invaded the Balkans, and various steppe tribes crossed the Danube. In order to survive... Alexius had to make a series of alliances with other states, something that emperors of the past had rarely had to contemplate. To stop the Normans, he had to make deals with the Venetians and the Hungarians. To keep the Balkans peaceful, he'd had to pay off the Cumans and repeatedly put down the Serbians. And of course, to push the Turks out of western Anatolia, he'd helped call the Crusades. The Latins had then taken Antioch from him, a wound which festered for the rest of his reign, and the creation of a series of crusader states in the Levant created new headaches for Byzantium. When I addressed listener questions at the end of Alexius's reign, you wanted to know how strong and how wealthy Byzantium was in 1118 AD. The answer was that thanks to Alexius's careful stewardship, the empire had recovered much of its former strength, but it no longer enjoyed the flexibility it once had. The Roman state could no longer field, say, a small army in the Balkans, a large force in Anatolia, and active fleets in the Mediterranean. It could really only field one fighting force at a time. This represented a significant reduction in the empire's bounce-back ability. The millennia-old idea that the Romans might lose the battle but would always win the war was now being seriously tested. Byzantine action was also constrained by the complicated web of competing states in its vicinity. Action taken against one of these actors would provoke a response from another. Each move the emperor made had to be carefully calibrated now that the centre of the chessboard was so crowded with pieces. If the Romans were going to recover to pre-Manzikert levels of security, then Alexius's successor had to be a good one. He had to have legitimacy. He had to be an excellent military commander. He had to be clever and healthy and have children of his own. And fortunately, they got one in the sturdy form of Alexius's eldest son, 
John Komnenos. John was born in September 1087 and was crowned emperor at the age of four. At ten years old, when the Crusaders passed through Constantinople, John was handed over to the Latins as a hostage to prove beyond doubt that Alexius had good intentions. Later, John was married to Piroshka, the daughter of the former King of Hungary, as part of Alexius's efforts to pacify the Balkans. The union was a happy one, and by Alexius's death, the couple already had seven children, including several boys. Alexius educated John in the art of war, and when Bohemond was finally defeated, the Norman was forced to swear loyalty to the emperor and his son, in order to ensure that the treaty was not broken when Alexius died. John was leading a campaign against the Serbs when news reached him that his father was dying. He raced back to the capital and secured the palace, and though we doubt that his sister Anna was trying to kill him, there was clearly unrest in the wider Komninoi clan. With his relatives occupying all the crucial offices of state, John had to keep a close eye on his kin. Now 30 years old, competent and well-seasoned, John was in as good a position as he could be to take charge of the Roman Empire. We have a better idea of what John looked like than most of our emperors, in part because both Anna and a Latin historian describe him, each saying he was swarthy with dark hair. He was medium height and medium build and in fact, William of Tyre claims that people referred to John as the Moor. So dark was his skin. Better than such descriptions, though, is the mosaic which you can still see in the gallery of the Hagia Sophia. John and his wife flank Mary and the baby Jesus as they come to the cathedral church bearing gifts. I've put up a photo of the mosaic and a lovely modern interpretation of what the couple may have looked like at thehistoryofbyzantium.com and on social media. One of John's first actions as sole emperor was to refuse to renew his father's treaty with the Venetians. As you'll recall, Alexius had turned to Venice during his war with Robert Giscard. The Romans couldn't afford to maintain a fleet in the Adriatic. They needed the Venetians to sacrifice their lives in order to keep the Balkan provinces safe. The Italians named their price for such a service free trade within the ports of the empire. This was a significant concession. Traders normally paid 10% of the price of their goods to Byzantine customs agents. Now, the Venetians paid nothing. As you know, the Romans were not dependent on this revenue. Taxes from the land funded the armies, but it was a nice bonus, and kept cities like Constantinople flooded with cash, which could be used to grease many wheels. It was not, therefore, economics which prompted John to rebuff the Venetians. It was the behaviour of Venetian merchants that had caused disgust in imperial circles. Freed from the need to stop and have their goods inspected, Venetian merchants had become too big for their boots. This behaviour had escalated over the past 20 years. It had started with haughtiness and arrogance, 
but now reports came that Venetians were beating up their Byzantine counterparts, that one Venetian ship had assaulted a church and stolen relics, and that some had even insulted members of the Komnenoi family. The Venetians were getting very close to challenging imperial authority, something that would never be tolerated. There was, of course, a geopolitical element to this. The Normans of Italy were not currently threatening the empire, making the need for Venetian support less crucial. But by all accounts, it was the desire to reinforce imperial sovereignty that was at the heart of it. The Venetian response, when it came, was savage. In spring 1119, the year after Alexius died, John crossed the Bosphorus and marched against the Turks of Anatolia. He took his army south and captured a city on the edge of the plateau which the Turks had seized. Then the following year he returned to the same spot and marched onto the plateau towards Sozopolis. This fortress was highly defensible, and John had to be clever to take it. He sent out raiders daily to pepper the defenders with arrows until their discipline broke. The Turks raced out of the gates and chased the Byzantines away. But it was a trap. John now brought the rest of his army up to the walls and blocked the path so that the defenders could not return. The small number of men left behind soon surrendered. The capture of this fort allowed John to march safely south towards Atalia. Check out the maps page at thehistoryofbyzantium.com if you need a reminder of the geography. Atalia was a port city on the south coast of Anatolia. It was the old headquarters of the Kivirioton fleet and a crucial port for communicating with Cyprus, Cilicia and Antioch. John spent the summer subduing small forts in the region. Atalia could now be reached reasonably safely from the west coast of Anatolia, preparing the ground for a potential march across the peninsula towards Antioch. Not only did Antioch remain a high priority for Alexius's son, but he mirrored his father's regime in other interesting ways. While he was off on campaign, John left his brother Isaac in charge of the capital, just as Alexius had done, and John appointed his friend John Aksuk to be the commander of his armies. Aksuk was John's best friend, a Turkish slave captured by Alexius during the siege of Nicaea, who he'd then raised alongside his son. A very similar dynamic to the friendship between Alexius and Tatikios. Back at the capital, John was now in full command. His military victories had removed any lingering doubts about the transfer of power. He crowned his eldest son, Alexius, as emperor, and arranged a marriage for him. A bride was found from Kiev, a move aimed at keeping the Rus on side. In autumn 1122, though, events began to move against John, forcing him to abandon his plans in Anatolia and focus on the Balkans instead. Reports reached the capital that a number of steppe tribes had just crossed the Danube. As you know, the Pechenegs had been the great menace during the 11th century, repeatedly crossing into the Balkans and defeating many Roman armies. 
Alexius had only been able to crush them with the help of the Cumans, another steppe confederation. The Cumans were now the dominant group in the region north of the Danube, and the Romans had spent the last decade ingratiating themselves with this new clan in order to keep them sweet. The group that crossed the Danube in 1122 seemed to have been a combination of small tribes trying to escape the oppressive clutches of the Cumans, and possibly the Rus as well. Some were identified by the Romans as Pechenegs, some as Cumans, some as other miscellaneous Turkic tribes. As they ranged across the Balkans, they naturally attracted other followers from the various groups of nomads who the Romans had defeated and settled on their land. Though they coalesced into a large group in order to raid the Roman south, they did not yet have a single unified leadership. John left the capital as soon as the weather would allow it and began gathering an army. His diplomatic service were ahead of him, They described the motley crew of different tribes facing him and indicated that each could be negotiated with in turn. Since these tribes were trying to escape the Cumans, each was eyeing a future within the Balkans. And since there was no overall leader yet, each was willing to listen to Roman ambassadors who offered them terms to join the empire. John's agents dispatched cash and prizes, and some tribes signed up and abandoned the main camp in order to indicate their friendliness towards Constantinople. The emperor, though, was playing a double game. He had no intention of trying to absorb the entire host. He knew he could never control them en masse. He was adopting the age-old Roman strategy of divide and conquer. As soon as his army was ready, he marched them north towards the centre of the nomad camp near Veria, just south of the Hemus Mountains. Having lured enough of the nomads away to think he could win, John struck. It was now April, and the Vasilevs had his army ready themselves in darkness. In the morning twilight, they closed the distance to the nomad camp and launched an attack. The steppe riders were taken by surprise and didn't have time to spread their horses fully across the field. This allowed the Byzantines to get close to them and engage in hand-to-hand combat. Once the nomads realised there was no way out, they began to rout. They could hardly go toe-to-toe with the heavily armoured imperial infantry. The tribes that remained now circled the wagons, literally. They rushed to their camp and hid behind the wall of wagons which they'd used to create a protective palisade. They pushed their women, children and animals into the centre and began firing arrows relentlessly into the advancing Byzantines. Many Roman armies would have backed off at this point, unwilling to suffer the casualties which an assault would lead to. But John pressed his attack. He was determined to put an end to this new confederation before it could form. This was no easy matter. Each wave of attack suffered heavy casualties and couldn't break through the wall of wagons. But John refused to give up and eventually ordered the Varangian guard into the fray. With their ferocious battle axes, the Northmen cut their way through a section of wagons and the Byzantines poured through the opening. John himself was apparently shot in the leg during the fighting. The nomads quickly surrendered, giving the Romans total victory. It was an impressive result. John was able to enroll the defeated warriors into his army and then march on towards Serbia. 
The local princes there had thrown off the imperial yoke when they'd heard about the battle. John defeated some rebels near Raska, settled some of the nomads on their land, and marched the Serbs back to Constantinople. They were then ferried over to Anatolia and settled there. John's propagandists went to town on this victory, establishing an annual Festival of the Pechenegs, which was still being celebrated over a century later. The emperor had shown decisive leadership and achieved a great success. But while John was dealing with the aftermath of the Battle of Veria, the Venetians were able to exact their revenge without a response from the imperial authorities. The Italians hadn't had time to reply to John's rebuff when it was made. They were busy preparing a fleet to head to the Holy Land. Around 70 ships and 15,000 sailors made the trek to Outremer in order to help the Latins take the city of Tyre. They were successful, and the price of Venetian aid was, you guessed it, free trade in all Crusader ports. This concession made the Doge even more determined to restore a similar agreement with Byzantium. In October 1124, the Venetian fleet put in at Rhodes and raided the island, capturing people, livestock and treasure. They then entered the Aegean and decided to spend the winter on Chios. From there they plundered the islands of Lesbos and Andros. They even went as far as Lemnos, just 70 miles or so from the Hellespont. They then stole the relics of another saint before heading home to a hero's welcome. The Roman navy, run down and underfunded, was in no position to respond. Apparently all John could do was destroy some Venetian buildings in Constantinople. In 1126 the Venetians attacked the west coast of Greece, stealing more relics from the island of Corfu and assaulting Cephalonia. Around the same time, news reached John of rumblings in both Anatolia and Hungary and decided he could no longer operate with Venice as an enemy. By August 1126, he decided to renew their privileges in exchange for a promise that they would once again guard the Adriatic seaboard of his empire. The Venetians seemed to have felt fully justified in their piracy, their fathers had died defending the Byzantine coast. Free trade seemed a small price to ask for in return. Whatever the rights and wrongs of the situation, it was a graphic illustration of the way in which this new system of alliances that protected Byzantium could swiftly turn against them. Speaking of which, the Hungarians were now on the march against the empire as well. Hungary had emerged as an important player on the Roman scene around the same time as Alexius had signed that deal with the Venetians. When Robert Giscard had been planning his Balkan conquests, he'd contacted the King of Hungary to see if an anti-Venetian alliance might be in both their interests. The Hungarians were interested. They wanted access to the sea and had clashed with the Venetians over the semi-independent cities on the Dalmatian coast. Since the Romans were strong allies of Venice, this could have turned the Hungarians into enemies. But the empire couldn't afford that. The Hungarians controlled the north bank of the Danube, 
they could easily let nomads, crusaders, or their own bandits across the frontier. To ensure that Hungary was friendly, Alexius had married John to Princess Piroshka, and since then, relations had been largely cordial. One of the few blemishes was the Byzantine habit of giving asylum to political refugees from the Hungarian court. This was typical Roman practice, since holding on to ousted royal family members could give one leverage. But when John offered sanctuary to the Hungarian king's brother in 1125, it prompted a war. Or at least that's the story we're given. We also hear of clashes between Byzantine and Hungarian merchants along the Danube. The real reason for the Hungarian attack remains obscure. Coming on the heels of John's renewed peace with the Venetians, it feels a bit like an assertion of strength. A reminder to the Romans to stay well out of the Hungarian-Venetian conflict in Dalmatia, and perhaps a desire on the part of the Hungarian king, Stephen, to quell internal opposition to his rule. Whatever his exact motives, Stephen crossed the Danube with his army in the summer of 1127. They sacked the border town of Branicevo, just to the east of Belgrade, and then made their way down the main Byzantine military road. This brought them to the cities of Nish and Serdica, which they attacked, taking loot and captives with them. Once more, John gathered his full army and prepared for war. He also wanted a coordinated response from his navy, which he may have built up again in the wake of the Venetian attack. John marched his army north to the Danube, while the fleet made its way up the Black Sea coast and then down the river itself. By the time the Romans reached Belgrade, Stephen was back in Hungary. The king rushed to the Danube to meet the Byzantine threat, but it seems he wasn't prepared for the scale of John's response. The Roman navy smashed the ships blocking its path and then ferried Byzantine troops across the river. John had learnt from his father and had in his ranks a group of Ligurian knights who fought like Normans and a unit of Anatolian Turks hired specially for the campaign. The Hungarians were taken by surprise and quickly routed in the face of this firepower. It was another very impressive victory. Amphibious landings are notoriously difficult, and I'm trying to think of an occasion since Maurice in the 6th century when the Byzantines campaigned north of the Danube. John was quickly establishing a reputation as an excellent general. After destroying a Hungarian fortress, John crossed back south and installed fresh garrisons in the cities which Stephen had attacked. The Hungarian Chronicle, written centuries later, includes an amusing if clearly fictional exchange between the two Christian rulers. Allegedly, Stephen wrote to John saying he did not deserve to be an emperor, only a midwife, since only an old woman would be so feeble. John replied, Certainly, the king will believe he's in the company of a midwife when I sever his manhood like an umbilical cord. Nice. Despite this impressive show of force, the war continued. Stephen gave his backing to the Serbs, who once again threw off Byzantine suzerainty and attacked the imperial border forts. Then the following spring, the Hungarians crossed the river and attacked Branicevo again. John marched out from Constantinople and Stephen wisely withdrew. 
The emperor made straight for the Serbian border where he smashed the rebels before turning back to Branicivo. Winter was approaching and neither side wanted further conflict. The two rulers signed a new treaty of peace and John returned home. This peace would hold and the Balkans would give the emperor no real trouble for the rest of his reign. Just like his father, John had been forced to spend the first decade of his reign in the Balkans when he really wanted to be in Anatolia. But the emperor had triumphed. He had crushed all opposition to his rule and reminded everyone of the power of Roman arms. It's good to be back in the medieval world, isn't it? Both the Venetian and Hungarian courts were largely pro-Byzantine and maintained friendly relations with the empire, and yet when their interests were at stake, neither had any concern at dragging Roman citizens off into slavery and burning their houses down, all to send a message to Constantinople about the respect they felt they deserved. And the Romans had to give it to them. They could no longer treat their neighbours as mere pawns. They were now major pieces on the crowded international chessboard. They had to be offered serious carrots or serious sticks if the empire was going to be able to make the moves it wanted to. Fortunately for the Romans, they had a very good player in John Komnenos. His energy and competence when faced with these challenges had temporarily shut down the Balkans as an active front. Next time, the emperor turns to Anatolia and the two Turkic states standing between him and his ultimate goal, the recovery of Antioch. <laughs> 